Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Savicale is a new scheduling tool that removes the strange power dynamics of sharing or scheduling link. While most scheduling tools definitely make your life easier, they can still be inconvenient for the person you're sending your link to. So with the ability to create personalized links and allow recipients to overlay their calendar right on top of yours, that strange power dynamic can be a thing of the past. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Kevin Smith. Kevin is the founder and managing partner at Smash Brands, where he works with CPG brands on packaging, branding, and launching. I wanted to bring him on because after launching and growing several of his own globally distributed CBG brands with a combined revenue of over $40 million, Kevin discovered his true passion for really brand strategy and creative direction. And he's worked with a lot of high-level clients like Kraft Heinz, Duracell, 7-Eleven, PayPal, and a whole bunch more. In our conversation, we'll hear about his four-step process to getting every CPG brand to $2 million plus a year, how to establish differentiation in a crowded market, and how they test colors, copy, and design to craft high-converting packaging. So, to start out, I love asking my guests, did you ever think that you'd be doing CPG products and branding for a living? I, I did, actually. I, I've, been a, I've been a lifelong um, entrepreneur. My, my dad was in the grocery business. And, and so I would, he worked for like General Mills and Quaker Oats as a salesperson. So I would actually like go to sales calls and things with him. And then when I was, you know, eight years old, I'd be out like going to the golf courses, collecting golf balls and like cleaning them up and reselling them. So I knew I would be for sure at some point selling, selling products, selling consumer products. Absolutely. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not every, not everyone can say that when they were eight, they sort of knew that they <laughs> had CPG in their future, especially the way that the landscape looks today. What about it sort of intrigues you or interests you? And why do you think that there's sort of that innate drive? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what kind of intrigues me about it. I, what I do know is that from like just early, I wasn't good at a whole lot. I'm not great at sports. I'm not great at a lot of other things, but but selling like my own products, even like as a young kid, I was good at it. And that's where, and I think part of it was like, even, you know, what my dad did in sales and, you know, in working for, you know, Del Monte and selling green beans and seeing that process, I just realized that this, this is my, like, if I have a superpower in life, this is going to be it. And I'm going to go all in. I love it. Yeah. Well, I'm actually really curious to hear a little bit more about your background, sort of all the steps that got you to where you are today. Could you give like a kind of brief 30,000 foot view of, you know, what are all the, the things that got to you where, where, where you are today? Experiences, jobs, brands, things you've done. Sure. Yeah, I'll go through that pretty quickly. About age of uh, 17, I, I, I joined the Marine Corps. So that was one of like my first big steps. And I still think that was probably one of the one of the best things that I ever did. And this is, I think, mm -hmm. where I learned a lot of um, patience and self-control and, and discipline and leadership, right? Because that was, I think that's something that's lacking when you're, when you're younger. And, and then when I, was, when I was in the Marines, about my second year, I started, I started really my first business where I would build and sell computers. So it was kind of like Geek Squad before Geek Squad existed, where I'd put an ad in the newspaper, build a computer. On the weekends, I'd drive around and set them up for people and show them how to use America Online, <laughs> and, and 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 that was my that was my first business. And and then right when right when I got out of the Marine Corps, started started going to started going to college, but also opened up some retail stores in California. They were called Nutrisport. 
And um, we opened them up. I opened them up in all of the, the gold gyms and we had a lot of locations and it was selling dietary uh, nutrition ingredients. And, and then from there, really kind of realized the volume was now moving online. So started a, an online store and a distribution company. And, and, and that was a tough living actually. So that one we had to about 5 million in overall revenue the first year. But honestly, like with now, you would have people coming into your stores trying to like price compete with online. Didn't know how to do that at the time. It was very confusing. And then online with all the competitors, because we didn't have good content or anything, it was just, uh, we were really competing on price. Like you could buy this product here or you could buy it at bodybuilding.com or a bunch of other sites. So I'd compete on price and we were making like 2% margin. It was horrible. Wow. And, and, and so one day I was meeting with a, with a manufacturer that was local to us and, and we were talking about making my own product now in, in the dietary supplement space. And we had an idea for this. It was kind of new and novel and hadn't been done before. And so that product I ended up putting on my own e-commerce site, advertising it, and it started taking off. And, and so here's about the time where I met my um, longtime business partner of 20 years now. And um, I'm like, I'm gonna sell my stores, I'm gonna sell my e-commerce business. I'm gonna give you 50% of this company. And he was a really smart guy, really, really his background was in consumer behavior and kind of analytics. And uh, let's go all in on this nutrition company. He came in and we have a kind of a specific way that we wanted to work on it. And within that first year, you know, we had, a, we had an eight figure brand. It was a top 30, it was a top 30 brand in that, in that, in that kind of sports nutrition industry. And then we had a offer to bias. So we, uh, we sold that brand and, uh, and then over the next five or six years, we started a whole, you know, a whole lot more other brands and they were successful to some degree, not all at the same level as that, but they were all seven figure brands that were doing, you know, 60 or 70% margins. And, and then we would, we learned that we were really bad at scaling businesses and kind of, but we were really good at making the product, making something that consumers wanted, kind of getting it in front of them and having sales come in really quickly and having a successful brand. It was then when you had to have bigger warehousing and more employees and start bringing in salespeople. We hated that. So we'd always just sell the brand and start the next one. And, and that's where then finally in 2009, um, we sold our last company and um, I decided I was gonna retire. <laughs> So did that for like two years and I really hated it. It was, it was fun for like two months and then just that entrepreneurial spirit, like it just was, I didn't have it anymore. And so we would get a lot of calls from businesses that were big and small saying, hey, like remember the work that you guys did, like will you work with our brand? And so then I decided to take one of those and my agency that we have today was started. And um, that's, the, that's the, so now, you know, full time, we work with brands, either kind of funded startups or you know the largest brands in the world, and uh, and we increase their sales. Yeah, yeah. man, that's amazing. I appreciate the the big overview. I'm curious if you can take me back a little bit to those early days with that first brand that you have that you had. Like, what was the sort of like the killer marketing strategy where you you launch it, it starts taking off? Like, is that kind of the wild west of Facebook ads? Is that uh, Google search? Are you are you running other kind of guerrilla marketing campaigns or just getting it into stores? Yeah. So this was we we. we Distribution-wise, we worked with basically one distributor who would push it out into all the stores. But the main volume at this point was um, really online, online retail. The marketing strategy was was really simple, but it was it was very novel at that time. And and so you know this is 2002, and and back then you know I mean this is there was no Facebook <laughs> like it wasn't that kind of yeah, stuff wasn't even happening. Before Facebook, wow, I didn't realize. Yeah, that. and uh, but really back then what was popular was forums. And, and so what we did is we were one of the first companies ever that would go into these forums. And at the time I called them sponsored athletes or reps. 
And um, they didn't really, this didn't exist, but we would bring in all the popular people on the forum, which now you'd call them influencers and, uh, and bring them under your brand. You know, they get free product, they get different things. Sometimes they'd be paid positions. And we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them across all the forums. So as soon as somebody would ask a question about, Hey, I'm trying to, you know, gain muscle or, well, you know, can you give me an exercise? It was our team that was now on there, the most active and popular users that would go on and, and counsel them and build that trust and relationship and eventually be able to recommend our products. And that's, that's what did it all. Hmm. Is that something that you kind of stumbled upon or that you saw someone else do, or how did you figure out that that was kind of going to be, you know, the, the thing, the killer sort of distribution tactic? hundred percent stole it from the music industry where I would see in those same kind of, in those same kind of forums with musicians, different reps, A&R reps, artists, company reps that were promoting, that were promoting bands or concerts or, or merchandise. And they would bring in again, like in those, in the, you know, in those, in those forums, they would bring in the, the most popular active users and give them, you know, something to be proud of, to get behind. They were going to be part of the band, you know, they were on the band's team. And, and when they had that, they would do anything. And, you know, they were just so excited to be part of the band. This was their favorite band. And so that's where we really, we just kind of borrowed it from one industry, tweaked that model a little bit and brought it into ours. I love that because as we were just talking about beforehand, that's sort of like the whole premise of the show is to find like, hey, what's working in this industry over here? And let's just go take this to this completely new industry adapted for ourselves. And I mean, everything's a remix, right? Everything everything's a remix. taken from someone else. You take inspiration, but especially like that's where kind of the new novel cutting edge strategies come from is you're not just reinventing them or you're not inventing them from scratch. You're, you're taking them from something else and then adapting it for yourself. There's very, I think there's very few, you know, and big novel kind of these moonshot ideas that happen that just change an industry. Usually it's exactly like you're saying where somebody sees something that's adjacent, brings it over, tweaks it a little bit, you know, right? it's, it's just almost like evolution, you know, and where, where it's just small changes over time. And if you look across 10 years, it looks completely different than from where maybe the idea started, but it was really an evolutionary process of people just kind of tailoring it along the way until it became this new big thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm also curious if you can take me through. So not great at scaling. Don't like that part of the business. Amazing at starting. So successfully sold and, and started several brands, which is not something that, you know, sort of like the, you know, do it once, lucky, do it twice. Maybe you're lucky again. Do it three, four, five, six times. There's got to be some sort of process, method, you know, philosophy to it. What do you think was, was the case for you guys in being able to kind of rinse and repeat the same process over again to successfully launch these multi-million dollar brands? Yeah. And here's where I thought maybe like we talked about, this could be an interesting part of the conversation because it's, I think it's very much a science and we have the science down now. Like if we work with a brand, I can get, I can, I think I'm the only agency in the world now on the brand strategy and packaging level, like in for retail that can, when somebody works with me, I can guarantee their outcome. Hmm. Not a, not a question. Like we're looking to do this many millions of dollars. I'll guarantee it. And, and really, and that is because of, of a, of a process. And, and so if you're open to it, we'll just walk through it. Like we'll just lay it out. And then anybody can use it. Let's do and they it. Can, they can remix it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what it was, and this is a, a lot of my, my business partner, this is really his, his strong point. But, you know, as we were, I was never a great marketer and, but again, like pretty good at like selling things. And then with a partnership of a marketer, that's a beautiful thing where they know actually how to go to get in channel and get in front of people. And, and, you know, if you're hiring a, a great marketing agency, let's say there's no way that you're going to drop a you know, million dollars in ads without first, you know, testing a little bit, making sure that it's probably going to work, you know, split testing, just various forms of it. And then when you're confident that it's working with the audience, you're going to start spending more money and ramping up, ramping up your ad spend. And so as we were working on the, like creating that first brand, 
and, and we went out and, and we had the strategy for it, but the agency to do the execution, you know, we weren't artists. And so we'd go out and we hired, you know, some pretty big name, some pretty big name agencies. And it was super disappointing to see that really everything is just a creative exercise. It's based on a whole lot of subjectivity. It's like, hey, I'm going to pitch you this idea for your brand. It's a great idea. Trust me, ask some friends and family and run with it. And then you find out, you get into market, and you're throwing away you know, 50,000 labels two months later because you did something wrong. And so Michael did have the idea of where there's all this research that's happening. And huge brands from Clorox and Pepsi, they go spend tons of money that say, why are some brands successful and why are other brands not successful? Like, let's look at the psychology of that and what happens in the retail environment. And, and from that, most of these studies, they, they actually get published. And so we're reading them and we're seeing like, there's some actual, there's some actual science here where you could build a framework where you might be able to create an unbeatable brand. At least this conversation is valid, at least kind of up to that first, maybe $10 million. After that, there's some different things that matter, but to launch a company that's going to do you know seven figures fast there's a framework and and what that looked like from all all the studies is you have um, like four steps and these are we can kind of break down i think you've got yeah. positioning and then you have the next step is called attract or attraction and then you have communication and then you have persuasion and there's basically a specific things you do in each one of these things and i've never seen anybody or work with anybody who like has done these and, and not had a very successful brand. Like it's just, at least, at least at that smaller, you know, seven figure level. Yeah. And so the, uh, the first one is super important and, uh, and that's the positioning. And, and so, you know, when I think of positioning is if you have, if you have good positioning, you're going to differentiate yourself. And if you have great positioning, you're going to be the only choice for that specific target audience. And so when we, when we think about positioning, there's two levels of it. There's brand level positioning, and that's kind of the more emotive things. You know, why, why should I care? Why should I care about this brand as a consumer? And, and then there's product level positioning, and that's more of the, how is this gonna help me today, right? And, and both of those are important, and, and what you, as a brand owner, really, really, really wanna look for here, because everything else down the chain is gonna break <laughs> if you don't get this part right, and that's white space. And, um, and here you want to be able to have, you want to be able to have differentiation, hopefully on brand level and on product level. And so as you're looking at whatever, whatever you're going into, I don't care if it's batteries and their commodities, there's always a way to position around the market. And you know, what, you know, what I find is a, is a, is an easy thing to do these days is you go on Amazon and like we have build our own tools for this, but I'm sure they exist um, externally or you can do them yourself and look at your product category and just pull in all the reviews. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. and, and, and here, I'm not looking for what people like, I'm looking for what people dislike or what they're having a problem with. And I can give an example of a brand that, because we still launch our own brands today, just on Amazon though, just for, just for fun. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this one was a zero to a million dollar brand, like fast, and it was simply, we're looking at MCT oil and in all the reviews, we started seeing a pattern where people say they didn't like after they used the product the, and they set it back down, it would kind of spill down the side of the bottle and get on their countertop. So they had to have a rag by it and wipe it off. And I've so- experienced that firsthand. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and, and so what we did is we called around to some olive oil manufacturers and said, hey, those pour top spouts, can we buy some of those from you? And they were like, sure, absolutely. And so we created positioning, product level position around, this is the only spill proof MCTOL on the market. And then the brand level positioning was all the important stuff of, 
you know, this is very pure, you know, amazing position for kind of millennial women, all the brand level stuff that mattered, but the product had white space differentiation. And now that allowed us to cut through and be, like I said, the only choice for a subset of the audience, the ones who care about a messy bottle, they're going to look at ours first and everything else is an alternative. So that's kind of, that's the first thing. And that's, yeah, I love that. So first of all, I think that quote, good positioning or different, great positioning, you're the only choice. Fantastic. I want to dig into that a little bit more on just like, what is truly the difference between sort of that good positioning and the great positioning where you are making yourself the only choice? Is it really, you know, nailing down that, that one specific differentiator, a feature, some sort of, you know, thing that you're appealing to a demographic? Is it a whole combination of things? Like what in your mind is really the, the catalyst? And I guess the thing that gets you from good to great positioning. I think it can be all that, but I think it's, it's what I like to do is I like to build like uh, competitive intensity maps. That's what I call them where maybe let's look at like, let's look at one thing, your, your audience, your target audience, who are you targeting? And if we look at maybe in a, in a, in a category and start, you know, saying and start kind of laying out on an X, Y axis, maybe different, you know, audience verticals, and then you start plugging in all the competitors, right? And it's like, they're targeting, you know, whatever, you know, millennials kind of this, you start plugging in all these different things. Eventually, we're going to see some areas that aren't being targeted. And, and it can sometimes be as simple as you're going to make a specific product. You're going to make a specific product for a consumer. What I don't like to do personally is I don't love to make a product, formulate a product, and then go, now, like, let's go sell it. I'd rather find opportunity or find the right consumer that I can help. And, and then build a product around that. Almost that's kind of the Apple way, like Steve Jobs used to always say, is they could just make some software and then figure out how they're gonna sell it. Instead, they'd rather study the consumer and, and then make software for them specifically. And I like that better, because you can, you, can be, you can have great positioning just of noticing, hey, we're selling coffee, which is a million coffee brands, but there's this very specific consumer that nobody is, is micro-targeting. And even though our coffee is the same, um, the way that we're going to talk as a brand and our language and the way that we're going to um, kind of include them in our tribe. Nobody is doing that for this small audience, but it's still a lot of money there. And here, and here's what I was talking about. Like maybe that small audience, there's a good amount of money, but it's not a hundred million dollars, but definitely it may be five. Mm -hmm. And so this gets harder as you get to like 10 million, then you kind of have like more, you know, like fast follow kind of rings for your, your audience maybe to grow and become more mass market. But in the beginning, you can go like really narrow with just audience positioning and be great positioning. That was gonna be my, my follow-up question was about the audience and you know, can you niche down too much or how do you know if this one differentiator is going to appeal to enough people for it to be worth business-wise? Are there yeah. any sort of metrics or indicators that you're looking for that says, hey, you know, for the MCT example, you know, we saw enough reviews or there's enough search volume that we think that, you know, having this one differentiator, the kind of spill-proof cap or, you know, dispenser, I forget the, what, the word, what the word was for it, you know, justifies, you know, now we can create this multi-million dollar brand around it. Yeah. So here's, here's how we work and how we've always been successful is, is, is of course, having the idea is really good and you got to have that, but now you got to prove it because you don't want to go all in if you can't prove it. <laughs> and so this is where, you know, we built all of our own tools, but again, anybody can do this. Even if you want to do it in a, in a, in a kind of like a non-sophisticated way of like survey monkey. But at this point to, 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 to prove it, what we would do is we'll go out there and, and we'll build positioning testing. And so now 
it wasn't just the that one idea of spill proof. We actually had like five different ideas from looking at reviews that were underserved or mm. nobody was addressing them. And so now we kind of build the context and uh, through video and we explain the brand. Like I'm explaining this brand to you. It's the only spill proof MCT oil. It has a top, like we're explaining to you a thing and, and then we're gonna kind of survey that, right? How interesting is this to you? And what we wanna do is we wanna do it on an, an accurate number that's representative of the entire US population. And so to, for that MCT oil example, we had to find, I think it was 350 consumers that purchase MCT oil to then find out like if this matters to them. If we only had like 4%, it may not be enough. But when we saw that there was like eight to 10% of the audience was very interested in that, we knew that this was gonna be a market we could go after quickly. How are they expressing the interest? Like, are you like, are you syndicating that through SurveyMonkey, for example, or are you running ads to it? Are you, you know, syndicating it through another research group? And then basically, you're there's like, you know, a question at the end that says, you know, do you want do you want to learn more, or you know, on a yeah. scale of one to ten, so, like, what does that look like? There's probably a million ways somebody could remix this and do it on the quick and the cheap. On ours, it's it's all it's this is all so based kind of on on like how I mentioned like all this science. We built all our own tools, and what we're looking for is purchase intent. It's an mm -hmm. it's an actual metric, and so what we would do is we're gonna we're gonna basically because we don't have this brand developed yet, we do have to explain the context to the consumer of like, hey, we have this product, but now put the product up against like you know bulletproof, or put it up against these top competitors that we know they're selling, and then gauge which one people are selecting that they're gonna get for free, and mm -hmm. and now now they're making a choice of hey, now I've learned about this thing. But I can also, this is the thing that I buy right now, which one do I want? And so that's how we do it. We explain context of a new product um, and, and then you'll explain it maybe with, you know, with a spill proof top, you'll explain it in a different way, in a different way, in a different way. And at the end, you're gonna see some of the purchase intent really low, some of the purchase intent really high, and those are the positioning themes you wanna move forward with. Wow, yeah, I love that sort of data-driven approach where even before, so are you creating a prototype or some sort of visual representation before you actually go and manufacture and then that's what you're presenting to those people and saying, hey, do you sort like of, this, do you yeah. not like this? In fact, if you want to go, like, as we get, it'll probably make a little bit more sense as we go into those next steps because then I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll go crystal clear with that. And I think, so again, at this step, there's no prototype. It's more mm. explaining product, just context through video and and maybe, and maybe showing some stuff called white box and I'll explain that mm. more, but um but yeah, not yeah. a lot of prototype yet, but we'll get there. Before we even commit to anything, we're going to prototype and be testing. Basically, that's yeah. the whole thing, is that through these four steps, you're gonna have a lot of ideas, but a lot of them are gonna be bad. So you wanna test, 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 because at the end of it, you can prove how, you can forecast the sales output that you will get in that channel and guarantee how much money you're gonna make. Right, Every yeah, because a lot of it is, is more like, uh, disqualifying or the sort of in trying to invalidate something and then at the end if you're like okay well i guess there's something here so walk me walk, walk me through that second step of attraction yeah. so so that that's positioning and then the next step is attraction and this specifically is for is for retail but it also there's a slightly different model that you would use for if you're a direct to consumer brand that's doing like digital advertising it's very similar but i'm going to go after the retail one because I, I like that the most that's the yeah. most challenging environment and so you know, now you have, now you have great positioning. Okay. You, you've gone through that step, but now that's really just internal. And now you got to bring all that forward where a consumer can see it in a matter of seconds and go, well, I used to buy this ketchup all the time, but now I'm disrupted for some reason. And I'm going to check this new thing out uh, and I'm going to give it my attention. And that's the attraction part. And, um, and to do that, there's very, very, very much a science and it's called distinctive assets. 
And, and so at this stage, what we want to do is be the most disruptive thing that there, that there is uh, on the shelf, or the same thing would be if this was a digital display ad. And that comes down to brand identity. Now, most of the time when people are thinking of brand identity, they're like, hey, I'm going to hire somebody to make me a logo, and they're going to give me a couple colors, and then I'm going to make some designs and a website. That's my brand identity. But it's actually way more, way more scientific than that. And so again, these companies spend all this money on these studies. And what they found is that if you can create something called a distinctive asset and there's specific, like a specific thing that you have to reach, and I'll, I'll tell you how to get there to have a distinctive asset, you'll have like 45% more brand recall. You'll have, uh, there's a, there's a metric called availability or visibility. That's when you look at a category entry point and you notice something that stands out to you and uh, you have up to 170% more purchase intent with a distinctive asset. And that's wow. huge advantage right there. So most brands going in the market, they don't have that advantage and they're having to spend way more money to get noticed. Okay. Mm. And so that's like the one of the reasons I think like nine out of 10 brands fail is they don't, they don't do this step. And so to do it, and there's books, there's a book, great book called Building Distinctive Brand Assets. You can, it's really a really dry read. It's like a, it's like a science book from college, but it explains the, the, like the statistics and um, the methodology kind of in detail. And, and so, and the, the, the rough version of it is that you can go out there and audit all the competitors um, in, that, are, that are competitors or alternative choices to your brand that you're, that you're developing. And, and here you want to break apart brand identity and you basically have these spreadsheets, let's say, but brand identity is going to be composed of maybe, you know, the fonts that you're using, the colors that they're using. What is their logo made up of? What words are in their tagline? What words are used on their pack? What imagery are you using? Do they have a character? There's a whole list of things that are, and, and so now for all of those competitors or alternate choices, and there may be 60 or 70, you start filling it in. And what you might notice is, is in their logo, you know, 22 of the brands have a tree. Well, as you start to chart this out and again, make maps of where everybody's converging on, because you'll, you'll see convergence everywhere, color black on the brand, 19 brands using it, you know, color white, 36 brands using it, color red, four brands using it. And so what you want to do as you're coming up with ideas for your identity, you want to be scoring between 70 to 100% uniqueness. And it's simply doing math of, you're going to add up how many times you see the thing that you're thinking about in one of those columns, divide it. <laughs> <laughs> apply like one more thing and it's going to give you a percentage from that. And so if your design firm gives you a brand identity back, right, for some like gum or something and they're showing you a blue thing and you and, and, and you do the math on it and it says 13%, you're going to have to spend like eight times more money selling your blue thing and you don't want to do it. And, and so what you're doing at the end of that is you want this aggregated roll up of as a, as a young brand, as a 70 to 100% uniqueness in your category entry point. And when you do that, all those benefits that I mentioned are going to happen for you. You're going to spend way less money getting people to notice who you are. And that goes for digital advertising or retail in-store. So the second one, there's not a lot of consumer testing, but it's just mathematics of apply your creativity, but then put it through this process and you will have distinctive assets um, that are going to be easier for people to notice and sell. This is one of the areas I feel like CPG and retail like really, really excels compared to other product categories and even like services. Like I, so a lot of my background is in like the SaaS and software industry. And there's a lot of like product design going on, but not a lot of science behind it. And not a lot of, you know, like we know that design is good inherently, but also there's sort of a culture also of just like, well, just ship it, just get something out there, even if it's really ugly. And I think that's true to a certain degree, but also if you just want to, set yourself up for the most success early on. 
if you do go through that process and really, you know, go through kind of the science of, okay, let's figure out the colors, the logos, the fonts, the, the things that really resonate with people early on, then you can give yourself a kickstart, right? Or you kind of give yourself a shortcut to quicker revenue, faster revenue, more revenue. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I think of it as like in the Marine Corps, you had this term called um, force multiplier. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. But you take eight Marines and they might be able to go up against, you know, eight to 12, you know, enemy force, but you give them night vision, you give us night vision and they don't have any, that's a force multiplier because now we can go up against 30 and then you give us a drone, that's a force multiplier. We got night vision and a drone, we can go up against a hundred. And I think of when you do like this kind of process, it's an activation force multiplier where mm. you're basically, again, it just comes down to, you're going to spend a lot less money getting, getting the conversion. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's that's got to be so key, especially when you only have one or two shots to really make an impression and get someone to to change their mind, right? To disrupt them from their current kind of state of being. So that third step is communication. Now where does this lead us? We're going to get super sciencey here. And so this one, I think, is like 40% of the sale, right? Is now, wow. now, okay, now we got something that stands out, but like that's just going to grab their attention. But we know the right positioning that, 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 that they want. But now we've got to articulate that positioning forward, and so um, so they want to buy the product, and and the the like to roll it up into the simplest step here. The term is called white box testing. There's a slightly different version that you do if you're a DTC at this point, but we're going to talk about retail. So white box testing, and what you want to do is now that you know this positioning at a brand level and product level that's going to work, really, you want to start articulating that in in whatever you know the whatever you've decided and strategy wise is going to be your kind of brand voice and tone, who your archetypes, all that, and you want to start communicating on like let's say you have a white box and we just want to use a white box with black and white text at this point no brand name and we want to you know get the messaging that might be the you know the primary display panel that you see in store and we want to work on a lot of options here so communicating value propositions and brand propositions to that positioning so that they read it and they're like oh I understand that's exactly for me there's no other choice and you, and you sometimes you come up with 40 60 tons of these white boxes that are just white boxes and then here you go and you test uh, you test without giving the consumer any context just like a retail setting they see your white box and, and you're mimicking that purchase environment and they see all the competitors. And, and what we're looking for here is when you put the right one in rotation that really gravitates, really resonates with consumers, we need an eight to 12% purchase intent. Any less than that, and it's gonna be difficult. More than that's great, but it's actually really hard to do. But eight to 12% purchase intent at this point, and I know we're gonna have, that means you can put this white box in market today or just a white ad with black text on it and you're gonna take between eight and 12% of all the sales. Wow. So this is really just an exercise to isolate the, the text and the copywriting and really sort of what people are reading about the brand that's communicating. Is there something that's intriguing to me here about this new product, brand, et cetera? Yeah. Without any of the bias of a design system or a brand name or a logo, all that's just wiped out. It's just words. And it's pretty crazy that, you know, there's the, the big competitors that are right there on the shelf next to it. And when the right words are there, they will pick the generic white and black text box. Hmm. Is, is there a, a science also to doing this step after the sort of design part in phase two where it's, it's the attraction phase? Like, you know, we're going from positioning to attraction to communication and not positioning communication attraction. For us, it's always this way. And there's a reason like when we move to the next step, I'll explain that. Okay. Yeah. So that the third step communication really isolate the text, the copywriting, find the the really the, the way they're going to communicate to customers and consumers in a way that's going to 
resonate with them. Now, step four, persuasion. I'm assuming we're kind of tying all these ideas together in a way that's... You're hired, man. That's it. This is it. So all this this step is, is it just brings them together. And now we do exactly what you're talking about. So now... The one thing that's always difficult when you're when you're testing um, product ideas with prototypes is if you're changing that message constantly, what is it that's converting? Is it is it, is it the design system, the substrate shape? Is it the, there's too many variables? So that's why we like to do communication first. Is now everything we put forward is going to have the same communication, and uh, and so here you want to work now. Now you have like all the individual identity pieces kind of identified, but they're not put together into a design system yet. You know colors and fonts and things, but you don't know how they're gonna come together yet. And so here you wanna create ranges of concepts and it may be, you know, between five and 30. And you want them to go from maybe very safe to very risky that you might normally look at if you weren't gonna test these and go, oh, hell no, that's not gonna work. But sometimes some of the best like ideas live on those like creative fringes and so mm-hmm. lots of concepts and then at this point you want to go into concept testing and and that's where if you had a product that was already in market today you would also bring that in right now because you'd have like a baseline but if you don't really what it is is more like round robin kind of um, split testing looking for specific um, markers of like standout consumer affinity and preference brand recall like all these really important metrics for for retail and and digital concept against concept and and so you know again we're going to put you know a thousand consumers or that are the this now we're looking at this exact target consumer that we've identified in the strategy phase and you're bringing them in and testing it and from there you know you're going to find some of the concepts really actually are terrible you're going to find some are pretty good. And then you're going to have a few usually because you've done things right now that are, you know, having a huge amount of standout because of like the uniqueness scoring and, and um, they're just working really, really well. So now you want to take those and bring them forward. And maybe in that data, you're going to have some things that you've learned that you can optimize a little bit. So you optimize those and then you go into full competitive testing. That's where you take those high performers. And again, kind of like in white box where you mimic the buying. Now you're doing it with the full context of the brand. You know, the design system, it's here. And, and now we're looking, we're now the main metric I'm looking for is purchase intent. And, and in mm-hmm. most categories, like here, I would like to have like a 30, 30% plus, meaning when this goes in market, I'm going to take 30% of the sales from wow. all those competitors. Yeah. And, and, and here is where we may like iterate a timer. To, but after that, I can go, this is ready to hand to a marketer. And this thing is going to sell when they put people in front of it. Yeah, as opposed to doing the more the, the marketing advertising first and then not knowing if it's a marketing problem or a product problem in the beginning, right? Because now you know that the product, you can, you can, you can check that box, right? You've done all the things you should, you've gone through the process. What's really sticking out to me is that, you know, I think that for every industry and every different product and service type, there are different risks involved and different constraints that you're working with. And especially for something like a, a retail CPG brand, right? There's a lot of time and money invested into creating inventory, right? Even just to launch it, right? You're, I'm assuming there's, you have to go through bulk orders. You want to basically you have you have one or maybe two shots to get this right. And so, like this is the most critical part of the function because of the constraints of the inventory, where you can't really go back or you can't just make a simple tweak like you can on a website. You have to recreate the labels. You have to rebrand. You have to redesign them replace the products right that's that's a really big step so you you really can't take that risk yeah and 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 the other the key i think one of the, the keys to it when you think about like well why would a process like that work and of course it's the science but it's really that every step you've brought your target consumer along the way to to give them something that they want to buy 
Like mm. as if you think of it in that way, everything from the positioning to going into communication, they've been part of it. They've been along with you and they've helped you get to a place that this is what they want, even if they don't know that they want it yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. I'm curious also if you can, like, this is mainly for, for new brands, for startups, as you mentioned, like going up to that kind of 10 million a year kind of threshold and milestone. But I'm curious if you can also touch on the differences between sort of working with a startup versus a larger brand. You know, I know you've worked with a lot of different brands between, I was looking at the list, you know, G Fuel, there's Polaris, Cradle Point, Duracell, Treetop Craft, PayPal, Curation Foods, 7-Eleven, Heinz. Like what are the differences between working with a startup versus working with a, a larger, more established CPG brand already? Yeah, so it usually comes down to risk. So a CPG brand, like they can assume risk, right? And so maybe um, like they're okay with moving faster and making quick ideas. Again, validating those with testing. Mm. But once you have, you know, those major brands that are out there, they have a lot of brand equity. And, 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 and the scariest thing for them is usually change because you change too much and you alienate your consumer base. So those projects, instead of being a lot about being you know, very like ultra creative and it's all white space and it's new and big ideas. What they're usually um, looking for is leveraging their brand equity to moving it to new audiences. And, and for that, it's a very similar process. It's just a lot more careful on all the testing steps because what we have to do really at that time is always be splitting between kind of two audiences, people that are currently buying their stuff to be making sure that however much change that you're recommending, that it's not going to alienate them or confuse them. Uh, so you're always doing one kind of test that's, that's checking to see if anything's confusing or if they're gonna lose sales. And then you're also doing another kind of test simultaneously that's at the new market, you know, like, like a company like Kraft, right? Some of their audience is getting a little older and, 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 and they, need to get, they need to get new people on the mac and cheese, let's say. Mm. So, so you're kind of looking at the older audience that, that is familiar with Kraft and, and doesn't like change and making sure you're, you're creating things that are working for them and that it's also doing the job and, the, and those are quite difficult, to be honest. And so you have a lot of testing in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's very difficult and, uh, and delicate. I was just listening to the, a series, uh, podcast series on Berkshire Hathaway. And one of the main segments was about Coke. And uh, so, you know, Warren and, Buck and, uh, and Berkshire invest into Coke. And uh, the reason actually that they were able to get in, and especially at a, such a good price, was because of the whole new Coke fiasco, where Coke has this, you know, amazing brand they're absolutely killing it and then someone in the head office or someone in some department brings up the idea of basically throwing away everything that's worked and then creating the new coke which absolutely flops you know stock price drops warren and, and charlie are able to come in and you know that creates a great position for them but the whole the whole kind of point here being that you know it's a very delicate process for these really big established brands to rebrand to introduce new products and i'm curious if you had any any take on that yeah, I'll get, can I give it, I know we got short on time, but I'm going to give, I'm going to run through a very fast example because I think yeah. this is a call that we get a lot of times to solve. And so there's, and I'm not, I'm not going to say their company name, but I will say that they are the largest or one of the largest prepaid, prepaid uh, like debit card companies in the okay. market today. And, uh, and so if you're familiar with these, but it's a lot of underbanked and people, they'll go to the store, you know, CVS, Walmart, whatever, buy one of these cards, you load money on it and you spend from it. And they had actually called us about doing a, like a refresh for their brand. And uh, they didn't hire us and, and they hired a, a really good agency that's out of, uh, that's out of Austin. And uh, it was maybe like seven months later, I get a call and it's them again. And they're like, Hey, here's the thing. We did that rebrand and then we, we first launched into Walmart and, and we launched and we lost 32% of our sales overnight. 
overnight. Wow. And it happened for a month and a half. We withdrew it, put the old packaging back. Can you guys tell us what went wrong and then maybe talk about a refresh done right? And, and this is common, right? And, and this is what scares brands right here. And, and it was actually really simple. Like they're, they basically, the agency, which is normal, didn't do any kind of testing on it. And they had this really cool new design. And instead of like really paying a lot of emphasis to that, this is what that category, when you walk into the store, people will want to know that they're buying a prepaid, a prepaid visa, let's say, right? And what they did is they brought the brand name of the company that nobody cares about and made it real huge and said, brand name of the company, prepaid visa. Instead of prepaid visa, brand name of the company. That was the whole thing, is they looked at it and they're like, oh, I don't, that doesn't look like what I would buy before. I don't know if that's what I want. And just go to the competitor that said, really big prepaid visa. And, and so with this, as we, we then go to fix the problem, I can tell you that the design wasn't some like creative, new, amazing thing. It really didn't even deviate from what they already had in store because consumers were just so used to it and they had equity in it. I couldn't recommend them they wanted to change and look more modern or something, but there was no reason to. But what we did do is on the communication, tons of testing about you know what really matters here. And really, if you looked at that category, every one of the companies said the exact same thing. Get paid faster with direct deposit, you know, trusted by X amount of, of customers every day. And then we started looking at that category and I'm like, well, why don't we talk about overdraft fees? And, uh, and they were like, you guys are like crazy. What are you talking about? You know, and I'm like, well, you can't overdraft on their thing. And they're like, of course, it's a benefit of this. So you can't overdraft on it. It's not a thing. And just like there's no minimum balance, like you just, it's not a part of this category. And I'm like, well, that's okay. <laughs> what if we still put on there, no overdraft fees? It's going to make people question every other card on the market or in no minimum balance and a few other of these other things. And we started testing it and it was going off the charts. So really their whole refresh was just refreshing communication to these new things that never had been done before. And they went up, they put that back in market and they went up 96% sales, millions of dollars a day overnight. Wow. Not even because the packaging looked that much different, but the messaging did. And now if you go into that category today in any store, every brand says no overdraft fees, no minimum. <laughs> and so now they got to keep innovating, but that's, yeah. that's more of what a big brand's looking for. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a fantastic example of that communication phase and how important that is and especially being able to isolate it and test it. So I appreciate that example. Well, last question before I go, the name of the show is everything is marketing. So when I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What comes to Of course I get, I get, you know, I get so anchored in, in, in what I do, but for me, when I, when I think of marketing, I think of the strategy behind it, the strategy of, of creating something, an idea, whether it's a message or, you know, even a, you know, marketing plan that is new and exciting that when people see it, they want to engage with it. I love that. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for sharing everything today. Some amazing insight and, and look into the whole world of CPG, of branding, of having a sort of scientific creative process. And I just want to say thanks and appreciate you coming on. Thanks. I hope some people can use it. Thanks again to Kevin for coming on the show and make sure to check out Smash Brand if you're a CPG company. If you can spare a moment, I've already gone ahead and done the hard work of creating a tweet for you to thank Kevin for coming on the show and let him know what you learned. All you have to do is click on the link in the show notes. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. Firstly, I love the practice of whiteboxing. By isolating the copy and using generic packaging to start, they can figure out which messaging resonates the most. It's easy to mix too many variables together in tests. So you want to try to isolate your variants as much as possible and especially the next time you're working on new copy for a landing page, email, or ad. And speaking of whiteboxing, it was interesting to hear about how they also test the copy with the branding as well. Sometimes the copy doesn't perform as well with certain aesthetics. Just because you've nailed the copy doesn't mean that the work is done, essentially. 
And finally, sometimes constraints help you focus on the most important thing and act as a catalyst to really optimize for that thing. For example, having one shot and making an impression to buy a CPG brand product based on a glance on a shelf, you have to get your branding, messaging, and packaging right, or else you're probably not going to get another shot at making it work. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.